Hello, and welcome to the Entrepreneur First podcast, where we uncover the stories and ambitions of some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs. My name is Alice Bentink. I'm the co-founder of Entrepreneur First, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're talking about innovations in reproductive healthcare. This is a fascinating and traditionally underinvested in area of healthcare. I'm super excited to see the next generation of founders tackling so many problems in this space. Our two guests for this episode are Hannah Janabdar, CEO and co-founder of Juno Bio, and Alexandra Busumier, who holds the same role at In Vitro. Both these companies use innovative technology to tackle reproductive health issues. In Vitro works to improve the success of IVF, and Juno Bio's microbiome test kit helps diagnose a wide range of vaginal health issues. So settle down, grab a cup of tea to hear a fascinating conversation between two amazing founders doing exciting things in the reproductive healthcare space. At Entrepreneur First, we're always eager to find out why people decide to become a founder. I asked Alexandra how her journey began. So I'm a researcher in training. I did a PhD. I, I did a postdoc. And to be fair, I always knew I wanted to start a company. I just didn't know when. I just knew that I was still lacking some maturity, some scientific maturity. And so I think I was at the end of my postdoc that I felt like I had accumulated you know, enough experience because, you know, going through a PhD and a postdoc is not easy and it builds a lot of soft skills that I find really interesting for when you start your company. So it was really at that stage, I always knew I wanted to build an R&D centric uh, company. So that's why I felt like it was the right time to go into it now. And the other reason that really made me take the leap is that while I loved academia, I always felt like there was maybe a little too much inertia for my sake, for my personality. And it's very well like this, like you need some risky long-term academic projects. And I was doing very much fundamental research, but I felt like I was missing, you know, the some more immediate return. I wanted some sanity checks from the end users and I felt like you know, starting my R&D company, but that would be product centric, you know, having a parallel stream of feedback that would make sure that your R&D, even though it takes longer to achieve is, is going the right direction was the perfect fit. So that's why I, I ended up going there. I moved a bit. I was in the UK, first in Switzerland, then in the UK, and then I went to the US. I ended up coming back to Paris, uh, first because I'm French and Spanish, so I did want to come back to Europe. It had been ages. But actually, it was because I obtained this fellowship from the Marie Curie Institute, you know, it's this European, which has actually developed this fellowship that really encourages academics to come to Europe and integrate a startup to discover this world. And I really used that as a stepping stone to try to start my company. And, and then I joined EF. And, you know, now I'm in Paris and I think it's a really, you can tell it's really an interesting hub to be in. Of course, London has always been known to be a, a great startup hub, but you can tell that they're trying really hard in Paris to make it a great place for founders. And I think in many ways it is. And I can tell that especially founders are really trying hard to, to help each other out to, to make this a long lasting, you know, startup hub. For Juno Bios founder, Hannah, it was biology, which sparked her interest in entrepreneurship. So to be quite honest, I think it probably started quite early during my master's. So I went from doing biology at Imperial to biochemical engineering at UCL. And the master's is very much about how do you translate, you know, biology into meaningful products for the world. And it's all about scaling up things, building bioreactors, downstream processing and all the rest of it. And so that master's for me was the sort of eye-opener that actually biology isn't just about having your favourite parasite or your favourite microbe, which I'll admit I have. It's about using that uh, to really put products in front of people. So the microbiome industry is really exciting. It's nascent in a lot of ways, but also the impact that it 
can potentially have is huge. Previously, we've seen in the space that I think there are a lot of overreaching sort of claims that have been made, interpretations that don't quite add up, etc. And also a lack of transparency for the customer. And we've seen companies fail in the space, uh, quite big companies backed by really big investors. So for us, it's really important that we're fully transparent with the customer. You know, what is it that's being sequenced? What is it that is being pooled and anonymized and used to power up research? And to what end? Is it just to make endless profits or is it, you know, at Juno to close the gender health gap? Uh, and then with the claims, the microbiome industry navigates a space that is adjacent to things like probiotics, which to, you know, date haven't been regulated, etc. So you really need to make sure that what you say is backed by science, backed by consensus in science and caveated in a way that makes it factual, but also accessible to the customer. And so that is challenging. And it's a challenging of uh, content and communication as much as it is in you know what we do behind the scenes. And that's where we've been really responsible. As one of the co-founders of EF, I'm also keen to understand why people join us. Whilst EF plays an integral role in making a founder's raw ambition a reality, we often find their goals and ambitions change once they've joined us. I asked Hannah to tell us a little bit more about why she joined EF. I joined EF because I had been working in the microbiome space. I'd worked in the lab and I'd seen all the different applications of this kind of technology, but I'd seen a really big sort of huge space and lack of anything being done when it came to the microbiome in the vagina and women's health, which to me was ridiculous because of all the microbiomes, it's the most directly accessible and meaningful and impacts, you know, over 30 women's health conditions. So I had this idea that like, well, this is ridiculous. This this needs to change. And some introduced me to Jade who used to work um, at EF back in the day I think and I just sat down with her and I said biology is great but this is terrible and this is what needs to be changed etc and she's like well come to EF and, and do it there. Alexandra had tried starting a company before but she felt that EF could take her founder ambitions to the next level. I knew that I wanted to work on the field that we call cell culture, so manipulating cells in the lab. Ironically, it had nothing to do with IVF, which actually makes this story even, I think, even more uh, interesting to me because I actually had tried starting a company for a year. EF had contacted me the first time, the first for the first cohort in Paris. And it's actually funny because I was like, you know, it sounds interesting, but I want to give it a try for myself. And, you know, I feel like there's no better way of attributing value to something when you've tried, you know, because I was trying for a year alone and it's really hard. And what was really funny is that the same person called me a year later because they're really smart and they were like, so how are you doing? Do you want to join us? And that's why I was like, yeah, maybe I do. <laughs> maybe this is actually really hard in the end. And so uh, I did decide to join EF. And at that point, I had matured a bit some ideas and I did make some progress, but it wasn't nearly as much as I would have done as I did end up doing with EF in a couple of months. So the idea was that I had spent a lot of time in the lab as a researcher. I mean, my research, it was bioengineering, first around glaucoma, then cancer. And so it was more the techniques that I was really interested in because I could really see, and I'm not the only one, that cell culture is going to be central to many, many treatments. And so what was interesting is that EF was really good at encouraging me to just look into it and to different fields where cell culture was central to it. And I didn't have a set idea. I thought I did. And EF was really open to saying, don't worry, you're going to come in with your idea. You're going to think it's the best one. And, you know, you're actually going to realize that it isn't. And that's exactly what happened. The good thing is I came in with knowing what I was passionate about, which I feel is maybe more important rather than attaching yourself to a specific idea. And then I gave myself, or EF gave me 
you know, some space to explore what other applications around that initial idea, you know, I could find traction for. And that's what ended up happening because at the heart of IVF, you do have cell culture. I asked Alexandra to tell us a bit more about what in vitro does. So the one-liner is we use AI to tackle infertility. In reality, as you can imagine, there's many ways of doing it. And so one of the main medical solutions to infertility today remains in vitro fertilization or IVF. And while it has helped a lot of people, often its success rates still stagnate and they're, they're still quite low. It means that the patients have to go back. They have to repeat the treatments, which are not, you know, they're not easy. They take a lot of time. They're expensive and emotionally they can be really hard. So the mission really here is to increase the success rates of IVF to make an easier path towards parenthood. But in doing so, we want to do so by helping doctors better treat their patients. So it's, it's B2B. And what we're doing is developing a SaaS platform. So it's a software as a service whereby, you know, we'd have a software that the IVF experts in the lab, the embryologists, could connect to, to essentially upload some of their key data, and we would help them make more robust decisions. And so the one decision that I was really interested to start with, first, because it's really key, but second, because it gets back to my own expertise in the lab, is that of the evaluation of the embryo. Because again, in a nutshell, IVF consists in creating embryos in the lab, you know, using the patient's gametes, maintaining them alive in the lab for a few days, and then choosing which one you'll transfer back in the patient. And for the last decade, clinics have been equipping themselves with a new generation of microscope called time-lapse microscopes. All they do is acquire images of these embryos as they develop, you know, every 20 minutes for six days. And so this is the data we're interested in because as much as they have their undeniable expertise, the embryologists spend time going through these videos looking for biological hints that might help them predict which of these embryos has the highest chance of leading to a pregnancy. And again, as much as they have their expertise, if you saw one of those videos, you'd realize how rich in information it is. And so the belief is that we're missing out on maybe some key hints that AI could pick up on. And so what we're doing is that we have algorithms that have been trained on these videos. So on videos of embryos for which we know there was or not a pregnancy. And so the idea is that now it's accumulated some knowledge that helps them, you know, upload their video. That way, when the algorithm sees a new video, it can predict with an accuracy that is, you know, higher than that of the doctor, which one should be transferred first so that the patient don't repeat, you know, treatments that will fail. I'm really happy to say that this year has seen our first uh, version of a product come out. And we actually also got what is called the C marking. You know, we're in the medical field. And so obviously you want to make sure that what you develop is safe to use for patients, for, for doctors. And so this was a huge milestone earlier this year in June. The team did a wonderful job. And so now we have the CE marking and we have a first version of the product, which is a software I'll tell more about later. And so now it brings us much closer to our, the patients, to the users, and it opens up a lot of doors for us to keep improving the product and the company, of course. Meanwhile, Hannah's company, Juno Bio, focuses primarily on vaginas. I asked her to explain how they cater to the wellness of people with vaginas. So at Juno, we're decoding the vaginal microbiome. And the, the vaginal microbiome is the community of microbes that live in the vagina and are implicated in over 30 women's health conditions from recurrent infections through to unexplained infertility. And these conditions are you know, poorly characterized, badly diagnosed and inadequately treated. We provide women with an at-home wellness test, which is the most comprehensive screen that they can get of all the microbes that live in the vagina, what it means for them and what they can do next. And then we pool all the results that we have and we use that to power up research to close the gender health gap. I think our, our biggest recent milestone similarly is the launch of our product. So 10 months ago, we launched our product 
our first ever one that was informed by the study that we had done the year previously, which was in itself one of the biggest studies of its kind. And then over the past 10 months, we've been working really iteratively, you know, adding features, talking with our customers and really learning so much. And I, you know, breaking news, I think we've hit product market fit according to the Sean Ellis test. So that's super, super exciting for us. Recently, the label Femtech is being used increasingly to refer to products which cater to women's healthcare. But is it right to use such a term? I asked Hannah if she finds this label appropriate. I think the short answer is in the short term, sure, why not? You know, it's a sufficient categorization. Uh, but in the medium to long term, no, it's not the right uh, terminology it's at all and the, the way to categorize our companies first of all obviously what we do are for people with vaginas it's not just you know your traditional femme uh, or women's health type company and then second of all i think it's probably not advantageous to the kind of problems that we're solving to bucket us into you know just this one femtech uh, category because you know you, you'll get people that are either engaged in it or not engaged in it even from like a funding perspective and uh, what we're doing is solving problems for over half the population of the world um, and you know I think it's bigger than just this tiny little femtech name that we get given. Alexandra believes labeling technology based on gender is unnecessary. I realize maybe it's because I don't know, but I'm not sure I've ever heard Mantech. I'd be, I'd be curious uh, if that exists. Not that, and it could, like, I'm not saying it shouldn't, but so I think, especially with IVF, I've tried to be as vocal as I could about it because it's very often that I hear that, you know, IVF is Femtech. And don't get me wrong, it's fine. I think it goes back to what you were saying, Hannah. You need some labels sometimes, and, and it is partly Femtech in the sense that we do use tech to help women. And I feel with IVF, it's just even more of a problem because in some ways, it sounds like it's just semantic, but words matter. They matter a lot. Words shape the experience of people and especially of patients, I think. And even though it sounds subtle, what I would imagine is that if you keep hammering this message home, it could really sound like fertility is a woman's problem, which if you, you know, extend the argument could really sound like the burden of parenthood falls on women. Again, it sounds a bit extreme, but also let, let's face it, it has been true in society for and could still be in some places. But the point is, I really think changing the way we use words could really remind us that no, at least it doesn't need to be if women want to be parents, of course, it's great. But it doesn't need to be that the burden feels like it falls on women because you can imagine if you are infertile, it's even harder because you could feel like you fail. And in some countries, it does happen. And in some places, it's not just a conversation that makes you uncomfortable. It's just it can be a big deal. So that's why I think it's it would be really good if we stopped associating fertility and, and parenthood to women. And also back to Hannah's comment, because gender is also being redefined. It's not just women and men anymore. And so and especially if you think about um, I mean, this is a separate subject, but there's also homosexual couples, men that would use IVF with surrogacy. So, and the last thing I'll say is that it would also undermine all the men that desperately want kids and that have infertility issues. So I don't see it as being problematic, like Hannah said, to use the Femtech short term. It, it makes sense, logically. We are helping women. I just wouldn't want it to be used exclusively. So that's why back to my comments, okay, Femtech, let's talk then about Mentech. Let's talk about everything else and make sure that we don't, you know, make this association that in the long term will not be beneficial to women. It shouldn't be that the burden of all this, all the problems that we see in the space, it shouldn't be on women. And I think that is a big thing that isn't traditionally addressed when we're talking about the kind of companies that we build. A lot of the time you'll be asked, like, as a woman, what happens? And as a woman, 
this and that. And it really shouldn't be as a woman, it should be as a person navigating the patriarchy, right? And so if you want to call it anything, call it anti-patriarchy tech, don't call it femtech. Advances in technology have also helped the reproductive healthcare market evolve. I asked Alexandra to tell us about some of the new tech trends she's paying attention to in this sector. So the thing is, I don't know if I'm going to talk about the trends that I want to see <laughs> happening or the ones that are seeing, but one thing, so it could be a mix of both, but one thing that I'm hoping is happening is, is really this idea that we are going to leverage AI to kind of become more and more interdisciplinary. I'm a firm believer in interdisciplinarity. It's, it's in my training and I think it's known that it's often where you foster creativity. And so I would really hope that there's going to be almost this idea that we can use AI to learn a lot from different experts within the same field. If you look at IDF, there's already this challenge of having gynecologists and embryologists, and you know, they, they are the experts in the lab, share their knowledge. They, they already do it and they do it well, but there's always this feeling that we could really make sure that data and help flows more freely across experts within reproductive health, but also outside of reproductive health. And I think this could actually apply to, I would hope, to all of AI in medicine. So making sure that we see AI being used to share the knowledge, even across clinics, I think that could be really great to make sure that we're not just all trying our own solution locally, which I did find happen often in academia too, by the way, but making sure that we can really get to the next level and adding some transparency, both for the doctor and for the patient. I'm not saying patients should have as much information as doctors. They don't have the same training. It can be scary, but I do think it'd be a really great trend. And I think that's where we all want to go, where we can actually, again, use this more data-driven uh, medicine to help patients also go through the process you know, more peacefully and to make sure that they're more informed about what's happening and what decisions are being made. Globally, access to reproductive healthcare continues to remain an issue. Hannah's company is trying to tackle that by offering at-home services. I asked her to elaborate on how this works and why it's beneficial. It definitely was sort of accelerated by the pandemic where a lot more things had to happen at home. Um, but the reason why it's so great is because it really helps the patient or, in, you know, in our case, women and people with vaginas take control of their own wellness and health journeys especially when you know traditionally they will have been dismissed or not had the same access if they'd gone to you know and done not at home uh, sort of testing so we're seeing the at home testing sort of space really grow in a really exciting way we're also seeing people really self advocate for their health and wellness which i think you know, they didn't really have as much like self-consent to do so, to go and self-advocate and say, no, like, I, I feel that this is wrong and something has to be done about it. And we're also starting to see a lot more nuance. So now that people, you know, in a greater way understand biology, in part because of COVID-19, and they understand the fact that there will be, you know, ambiguity and that science is an evolving thing, people understand nuance and people can accept uncertainty around different aspects of, of that home testing sort of space. I love this point around enabling people to advocate for their health needs and particularly in under-researched areas. I asked Hannah what she thought about this. Yeah I mean a big part of the gender health gap is literally just being taken seriously like women aren't taken women and people with vaginas aren't taken as seriously as you know their counterparts in the medical industry. At EF, I've often noticed how founders who transition from academia to business can initially find it challenging. I asked Alexandra to tell us about how she dealt with leaving her lab to spend more time pitching her products to customers. 
I suppose one of the big changes that was very welcome actually in, in joining EF is this idea that if you want to start a company, or at least the way I started it myself, you need to be ready to face the end user or the customer, call it, or the patient, call it however you want. I'm not saying that when you're in academia, you never do, you could, but it's not something that is typically encouraged unless you're really on the clinical side of things, but even then. So I guess my point is just making sure you like it, because often when you're in academia, you could be someone that likes being in their own lab. I certainly was being, you know, alone or very often not talking to users. So I think that would be a change that you need to be ready for. And especially, you know, the idea of not having any excuse in the sense that when you're doing research, you have so many other things to do that you, you're, and especially if you're a perfectionist, you're going to be like, okay, let me work more on this. Let me work more on this. And guess what? You know, you didn't talk to the end user. And that's fine, by the way, because more often than not, you don't need to in academia. So the first change I'll say is really be ready to have no excuse. It's like, no, if actually, if you want to start a company, you're not going to be pushing a technology, which is often the case in fundamental research. I'm not talking about all research. You're going to have to first show a proof that this technology is going to be pulled. And that switch, it sounds subtle, but that switch is actually really hard because you're always going to be thinking, oh no, but I really believe in this technology. I have preliminary data, believe me. And it's like, you know, it's kind of switched around. That's the first thing. And the second one, it's maybe a little more personal. So I don't know if it applies to everyone. Science is often incremental, as it should be. Not, not always, but often. You're often used to bringing data with you to prove what you're saying. And so I guess, uh, I don't know if you see where I'm going with this, but the idea is that when you want to start a company, at least the way EF encourages you to, there's this switch of like, see big. I'm not saying you don't see big in academia, but in academia, when you want to get grants, you're not talking to investors uh, that are looking for risky, like, long-term risk. You're talking to people who are a little more risk-averse, so you have to adapt understandingly your discussions and especially as I said in your training you're often seen as someone who does good science and it's true if you have data that proves what you're saying and so I guess the switch that was hard for me and still is today is the idea that you are encouraged to be a storyteller and it's good it's fine it's good but it's kind of this opposition that I often make which is that I do think there's this difficulty of just admitting that it's fine you're telling stories you believe in it you're not lying you're just trying to take this leap so that then you get money to then prove it. So it sounds again subtle, but I feel like it was, and it still is sometimes a bit hard for me to kind of um, marry those two sides of me. You become a bit schizophrenic in a way. Something I've observed at EF is how founders often struggle with storytelling in a way that feels authentic to them. They need to sell their belief. You know, this is what I believe in and what I'm raising venture capital before. For some CEOs, this starts off as a bit of a struggle, but then there's a shift where they begin to suddenly enjoy the storytelling and embrace that as part of their role. For Hannah, embracing uncertainty is key when it comes to dealing with clients. Um, I think, you know, being vision-driven versus data-driven is, I think, the first most important shift that you definitely see. But I think also the second is probably around just being super comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty and navigating that, you know, every single day, every week, every month, because that's possibly the second hardest shift that you will encounter. And it's the most important skill to have when you're, you know, running a startup, like the ability to navigate and still function in ambiguity in an ambiguous environment. And then I think the one after that would be moving from, you know, a place that's maybe comfortable where you have a list of things that you will always, you know, it's science, science, it evolves, but you've got the basics down, you know how it works to a place where you have to question every assumption that you've 
ever made about your company. So not only are you living in this like ambiguous environment, but you are also questioning the fundamentals, the basics, the assumptions that you've made and changing your company according to that. And the last one I was going to say is just it's more of a practical thing, but you go from working in your own little head in your own little lab to the real world. And there are things like nine to fives and holidays. And like you can't just send an email and expect people to respond to you, you know, immediately or the next day, they'll come back to you in two weeks sometimes. And so you have to navigate the real world, which I know sounds crazy, but it was a definite shift for me. I was also keen to find out how Hannah and Alexandra initially got the attention of investors. The one that always sticks out in my mind is always the process of pitching a vagina company, right? And the difficulties of pitching that vagina company. And I think I've talked about it before, but I can never overstate how many times I've sat in a room full of the same type of person and been met with, you know, things like, but do vaginas really, do they really have these problems? Like, I've never heard of it. And I'm like, well, of course you haven't heard of it. Uh, Or, you know, this other instance in which we were on our way up to a board meeting and in the lift on our way up to the final meeting of this sort of like investor that we've been chasing, we were asked not to say the word vagina. And I I was like, well, that's the company. (laughs) If you're not comfortable with that, then this isn't going to work. So I think the takeaway from that is when you're raising a seed and it's your early days and it's vision driven, you have to talk to the people that are right for you um, and navigate, you know, instances where if you're, you know, uh, building a company around a taboo topic or something that is not standard or whatever, you need to be really strong in your conviction that no, the world is messed up and this is what needs to change. And that's why I'm doing this and, and keep going as opposed to like shy away from it. Meanwhile, Alexandra thinks that finding the right investor is like dating. She believes founders have to keep trying until they find the right investor. The only thing that comes to mind is just remembering this time as the time where I pitched, I mean, hundreds of times within within four weeks. I was so tired of hearing myself talking. And I guess my there's no serious takeaway message other than it's normal. <laughs> I guess what I'm trying to say is as much as I, I do believe that you need to be passionate about what you're going to work on because literally you're going to dream about it, you're going to talk about it in the morning, uh, lunch. It's also, I wouldn't you know, want people to feel bad if some days they're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm pitching again. It's normal. It's your job as a CEO. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. Uh, it's just, it's hard. I guess it's the only message I have to convey is it's hard. And back to both of your comments, I, I think I agree that it's about volume. I mean, I think for most people, you're going to have rejections most of the time. Don't take it personally. That would be the other thing that I'll say, because it's easy too when you're tired, when you know you you believe so much in it, you're going to hear so many no's. It's fine. The other thing I'll say is, I think you're right. It's about finding the right investors. And I also think it's about listening to some of them. Like, I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes, at least in my experience, I've also gained from listening to them. It wasn't just a one-way street. It was like, well, of course you need to be convinced. I, I am convinced of what I do. But I guess it, I, it was also interesting to hear from some things from them, obviously only after having advanced in talks. I'm not saying I'll take the advice from the first uh, introduction, but I was surprised to hear that some of them do take the time. They, they really do take the time. And I thought it was a really good signal because back to what you said, you're going to work with these people for one, two or however many years. And so in a way, it's almost like hiring. Like, I don't know how everyone hires, but one of the main things that I do when I hire is like, do I want to talk to this person every day? Like, are they nice? Do they have good values? So I guess um, the takeaway message, it's it's really messy process. I talked to 70 investors over a month and a half. And, and sometimes it comes down to the few investor that you really click with. It sounds 
silly. It sounds like you're talking about dating. It's not. It sounds like you're talking about finding friends. It's not. But you do click. I have clicked. It sounds silly to say it, but it was just this one. I talked with this one investor and I hang up and I was like, honestly, if it doesn't work with this person, I don't know who it's going to work with because it was just, it flowed. It, you could tell we were super interested. You could tell we would challenge each other, you know? So sometimes it's just hard to explain. It is like dating. It like both EF and raising investment, like both of those things, just dating, right? Well, I agree that yeah, actually, it's a really good point that I always like to when I'm asked what's EF like, I'm like, well, I've actually never done this, kind of, but it's just like, you know, imagine, imagine dating and imagine, but it's, it's better. It's imagine dating out in the open in front of 50 people. And, you know, so that it's known when you break up, everyone knows. And so, <laughs> so I agree with you. I do think EF would make the most wonderful reality TV show, but I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if that would be appropriate. We find the best founders usually develop a meaty belief that keeps driving them forward. I asked Hannah to tell us what the future of her company looks like. So for us, our next big milestone is the clinically actionable version of our test that we'll be launching soon. Um, and it's something that we've been working towards over the past 10 months since we launched our wellness test. Um, and we're really excited to be putting that in front of you know, a whole bunch of women that need it and really scaling up the number of women that we reach. Alexandra's milestones involve deploying a new product and conducting new research. There's two really big milestones that I'm looking forward to. The first one is the deployment of our product. So as I said, we have a first version, we have CA marking. So now we're going to deploy it to our partners very soon and next month. That's going to be very interesting. You know, uh, lots of things that I want to get back from these, uh, these pilot studies. And the second one is that we're in the midst of a pretty interesting clinical comparative study, one that not many have done, been done like this, that would really help us rigorously answer the question, how much added value we have compared to doctors, as opposed to just, you know, throwing around numbers that I find that that often happens in AI, where it's like, oh, this is my performance, this is a really high number, close to one, you know, by me. And I think that's going to be really core to, to our publication and to really convincing our users that this is good science, we are really helping you. And we're not replacing you, another subject, by the way, but we, if you use us, you could really save a lot of trouble from patients. Obviously, it helps the clinics too. And so I feel like those results are going to really bring us to the next level. The future of reproductive health looks promising thanks to the work of these amazing founders. I asked them to share a few tips for prospective entrepreneurs. Pick something you're really interested in. Make sure you don't just pick something because it seems to have traction and it could lead to fundraising and then you could have your own company. I'm pretty sure you're going to regret it and you're not going to, it's not going to work out. That's the first thing. Uh, the second one, back to another comment we made earlier, it's learn to sell yourself, especially academics. And I think you have ways of doing it. Try to get your own grants, try to train yourself ahead of it if you really do want to start a company, because I do think it really helps you learning to sell yourself in academia at least. And the last thing is I would really encourage you, and I, this applies to me too, aggressively, and I insist on the word, aggressively ask for help. And if people don't answer, it's fine. Don't take it personally they're busy so i mean within the limits of politeness you know insist and, and answer again because if there's one thing that i've learned is your job as a founder is going to be to move mountains some are bigger some are smaller and you have a finite amount of energy the most important piece of advice is to start start and then keep going and then talk to all the founders that you can talk to because there's so much you will learn from your peers and i think for me that's the most um useful piece of advice that i could give that brings us to the end of this episode of the Entrepreneur First podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Alexandra and Hannah's stories and visions about innovations in reproductive health. Join us next time, where Matt is going to be speaking to Sasha Hacko, founder and CEO of Unitary, who will be bringing AI to the content moderation space. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. For more information about Entrepreneur First, visit joinef.com. Thanks to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the podcast. And thank you for listening. Catch you next time. Fruition.